Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. The Rose Bowl. The game that inspired the college football bowl season has a long and storied history. The stadium itself is 100 years old, and in celebration of it, Pigskin Dispatch is assembling some of the top historians and authors to share the memories, people, and events that make the granddaddy of them all the special game that it is. Enjoy this Rose Bowl memory from pigskindispatch.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pigpen, your portal of positive football history. And we are still in December, and it is Rose Bowl month, and we are celebrating the great history of the game, 100 years of the stadium, named the Rose Bowl. And we have some great guests joining us. And tonight, we have one of those, Dana Auguster, uh, a longtime historian and podcaster here on Sports History Network. Uh, Dana, welcome back to the Pigpen. Hey, man, thank you for having me, man. It's great to be here, and um, it's always a pleasure to be with you whenever we talk about football. Yeah, Dana, you really uh, have a passion for, for your teams, and uh, I'm still trying to figure out how you have the California connection because uh, we know that the Chargers are your, your football team, and UCLA is your college football team. Right. So it's, uh, interesting. How, how did you ever become uh, a, Cal- a UCLA in uh, San Diego slash uh, Los Angeles fan? Well, if you notice, the colors are very similar. And oh, I've yeah. always been partial to powder blue for whatever reason. And um, it, it's, it's one of those rules that I have where it's really my really my real love for UCLA is actually the basketball team and the success that UCLA have had over the years. And and plus, you know, watching the Rose Bowls over the years when I was a kid, I was just fascinated with the colors and the, and, and it just seemed like their uniform just was stood apart from everybody else's. And it just was one of those things where I just gravitated to, just like the Chargers with the powder blue and gold and, and UCLA is more of a collegiate blue and old gold. So that's where that love came from as far as like my love for the school and, and those two teams. You know, even though I grew up in Louisiana, you know, that I've always been gravitated to California teams for whatever reason. I don't know why. It's just, just that just was me. Maybe I have a California soul. I don't know. But maybe that's what it is. 
Well, I, I was thinking maybe, okay, Louisiana, we know the, the abbreviation is LA and we know Los Angeles, they call it LA. If we thought maybe, eh, maybe that's maybe so, maybe, maybe so. <laughs> but you know, if you, if you ever been to Louisiana and then you, then you go to California, this is like a world of difference. So <laughs> that, that's true. I, I've been to both, both States and uh, you're right. Quite a difference there. And the food is excellent in both, but completely different. That's for sure. Right. <laughs> Well, we are going to talk about uh, one of your UCLA Bruins uh, Rose Bowl games tonight that uh, you have some interest in and in sharing some great memories with. And that's the 1966 game when they played Michigan State. And uh, we're really excited to hear the history of this game. Well, it's, it's one of those games where if you is one of those great UCLA games that and it was actually one of the great Rose Bowl games that no one really remembers or really talks about because they had one of the great endings in Rose Bowl history that a lot of people don't remember or don't realize or whatever, whatever have you. It was a game, uh, like you said, it was Michigan State against UCLA. Michigan State was a 14 point favorite. Okay, in that game, they were the number one team in the country. I don't think UCLA was even ranked, but they were in the Rose Bowl. They had defeated USC earlier and they had a roller coaster year. Uh, but somehow they, they, they pulled it away. They pulled out in the, in the final seconds. Um, to talk about, give you a little background of, of the season heading up to that really quickly. Um, there actually was a rematch from a game earlier that year in the first game of the year. Michigan State hosted UCLA in East Lansing, and it was a hard fought 13 to 3 Spartan win. Okay, but UCLA under head coach Tommy Prothrow, which I've always considered the coach before the coach, because he's always preceded a great coach for that particular team. If you look back, and I have a podcast topic that's just brewing in my head all of a sudden. But anyway, <laughs> um, they were led by an unknown quarterback at the time named Gary Beban, who, of course, would later on become UCLA's lone Heisman winner. But they were they they lost in the season opener and there was one play in that particular game where Beban threw a long touchdown pass but was called back because of penalty. And if you know anything about Tommy Prothrow, he was beside himself because it wasn't a penalty he felt, but it kind of like propelled them for the rest of the year. Michigan State pretty much ran through the rest of ran through the Big Ten that year. The big win of the year came on a 30, 37 to seven win over Michigan. You know. And actually, excuse me, against Ohio State. And that pretty much propelled them to the Rose Bowl that year under head coach Duffy Darty, one of the great college coaches of all time. Again, not too many people talk about for whatever reason. And they had, and the key to that, to that team was their running game and, of course, their defense. And, of course, when you talk about Michigan State and their defense in the mid-60s, Two names popped to mind, and of course, that's George Webster and Bubba Smith, who later went on to play for the Colts. Um, but those two guys were the they, they were the engine that made that Michigan State Spartan defense go. And they rode that number one ranking all the way to the Rose Bowl that year under under uh, quarterback Jimmy Lee, um, who was a great mobile quarterback and one of the first black quarterbacks in the Big Ten, you know, and he, you know, and he was just an outstanding, he was the prototype quarterback for the 60s. He was a scrambler. He was somewhat short, but he was a scrambling quarterback and was very accurate. 
Um, as for UCLA, they after they lost their first game, then they went on a tear. They beat Penn State, Syracuse, and tied Missouri during that year. And, you know, when you say Penn State, of course, that's Joe Paterno. Syracuse had a running back named Floyd Little, who they pretty much contained. And they rolled that all the way to their big crosstown matchup against USC, which they ended up uh, knocking off. In, in for that to, to advance to the Rose Bowl 20 to 16 in the Coliseum. But that wasn't the finale of the year. The finale, UCLA's finale, season finale was in the brand new Liberty Bowl Memorial Stadium against Tennessee, against the Tennessee Volunteers in Tommy Prothro's home state. And they lost that game by three on a very controversial non pass interference call in the end zone, which was. Uh, and it was turned out to be an interception that Gary Beban threw and pro throw was beside himself again. And he, it was, he was so bad that he had to um, apologize to all of the coaches and the officials of Tennessee because of how he acted and how he called the, all the things that he, all the names that he called the Tennessee officials, just all, all the <laughs> officials doing that game and was not. So you, you can imagine with that Tennessee draw that he had, what it sounded like, but uh, but still, they were in the Rose Bowl, and they were facing off against the number one team in the country, Michigan State, and everybody thought that this was going to be a cakewalk for Michigan State. And unfortunately, and as it turned out, it wasn't. A very good game. Uh, I, I'm, I'm surprised, okay? Now, you said that they were, uh, they were the UCLA was 14-point dogs in mm-hmm. the Rose Bowl, you know, near where UCLA is, you know, much closer they're much closer to the Rose Bowl than Michigan State is, but yet UCLA went to Michigan State and lost by eleven. So I'm, I'm kind of surprised that uh, they were only uh, fourteen point dogs. You, know, you would think that would be a, a much closer spread than that. But the, I, I think what it was was the fact that they probably looked at the strength of schedule for that game. I think we looked at the strength of schedule, and of course, the, you know, the, 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 there was something. There was a major East Coast bias. Of, of college football in the, even in the 60s. You know, they had USC out in the Wild West, but they playing in the athletic, at the time it was called the Athletic Association of Western Universities, which be, later became, of course, the Pac-8. But they looked at that and they kind of like, well, that's back there, that's the West Coast, you know, did they play a much tougher brand of football on the East Coast and in the Midwest. So there was some kind of bias there. And of course, they also looked at the fact that UCLA had never won a Rose Bowl either. You know, they had played in, I think, four Rose Bowls up to that point and lost all of them. So they were looking at that and then they looked at the defense and they looked at the strength of Michigan State and they were and they were prohibitive favorites because of, I think because of, mostly because of the bias, but them losing as you know, in the beginning of the year with UCLA losing by just 11 points. You're like, okay, they should have been closer, but for some reason, and UCLA showed to all of the odds makers that it should have been closer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, these were, I mean, two spectacular programs. Uh, I mean, just to sort of put it in perspective, the 1967 NFL draft in the top eight, five players uh, were either from Michigan State or UCLA in the top eight. 
Uh, you know, that's, that's amazing when you have five of the top eight or just from this one game that tells you that the caliber of uh, individuals performing in it in the caliber of teams that are playing in this great game. And, it's, and also, I think that's when, it, when, it, when everything started to turn, just the mid-1960s, coming off the 1965 season, January 1st, 1966. I think that a lot of that bias started to turn, especially after this game and, and, how, and all of the stuff that happened in this game. It was really a lot, but it was a great, great game and a great, great finish. And I think that it, it propelled UCLA into another level of respectability in the national in the national consciousness of college football yeah it's uh i totally agree with you um you know, this was a really uh, a sort of a watershed mo- mo- moment um you know coach duffy really uh did a lot of things to bring uh you know black athletes into the northern teams and uh, into you know what we call the fbs today and uh right. you know he had a great all-star squad there and it really sort of started the ball rolling towards uh you know having more uh, uh of you know the african-american players playing on the big time stage in college football that's right because i mean you got george webster and you have bubba smith and you got jimmy red quarterback which was something of, a, of an oddity but duffy darty to his credit uh, looked at talent rather than it over everything else. And he wanted to win. And that was the key aspect of that. He wanted to win. And with him getting Jimmy Ray, again, if you, if I had to compare Jimmy Ray to somebody that's like a contemporary now, the first person w- would be Lamar Jackson. That's who he reminded me of watching film of him. Um, somewhat short, you know, shorter than a, than you would want to, want to have as a quarterback, but he was very mobile and extremely athletic and extremely accurate, accurate passer. But Michigan State, like most Big Ten teams, really didn't run the ball all that, didn't throw the ball that much, excuse me, didn't throw the ball much. And for, and they were just the typical Big Ten team, put knuckles in the dirt, three yards in a cloud of dust type of thing. Yeah, it's uh, but we had the opportunity probably about six months ago to talk to Maya Washington. She is the daughter of Gene Washington, who was a you know great wide receiver uh, for Michigan State on that team. That's right. And uh, through through Maya, uh, you know, talking on behalf of her dad in this book, uh, you know, she had gave a lot of you know, great credit to you know to the quarterback uh, to to Jimmy Lee of you know doing a lot of great things and uh, really. He, he could have been a superstar and just had some uh, bad things befall him that uh, didn't, he didn't get the opportunity to do what uh, he that's could right. do, but uh, you know, spectacular athlete. That's for sure. Right. Now, another thing, now another thing about UCLA that gets overlooked is their nickname. That UCLA team's nickname was called the gutty little Bruins and mostly because of the defensive front seven, the defensive front seven was tiny to say the least, even for 1966, it were tiny. Um, the heaviest defensive lineman was John Richardson, which was a defensive tackle at only 225 pounds. That was the, that was, that's light, you know, for 225 pounds. And, and something else about that defensive line was, the, was one of the defensive ends, guy by the name of Terry Donahue, which later would become the winningest coach in UCLA's football history. Terry Donahue was a part of that um, was part of that defensive line, and he would who I call Mr. UCLA because he was a player, then assistant coach, then head coach for like forever, and he is Mr. UCLA Bruin in my book. 
you know, but he was part of that gutty little Bruins defensive front seven. Yeah, uh, definitely. I think the defense was uh, definitely one of their, their strong points of their team. But uh, who, who did they have on offense? You know, they, we know that they were putting some points up that year, too. Well, they had Gary Beeman, who was more of a running quarterback. Um, but he was, but he could throw the ball as well as anybody. Running back was Mel Farr. Later played for the Detroit Lions. He was their tailback. Run a, a receiver was Dick Witcher, who was an All Pro with sent with the 49ers in the 70s. So that was their main cogs on offense. Um, and again, Tommy Prothrow with him calling the plays, you never know what you're going to get with him because he was what you were. He was the quintessential riverboat gambling coach he would call reverses and flea flickers and all kind of different things to catch the defense off balance and some of that genius you would see in this game because a key play in this game happened from his riverboat style looking back at doing research on it i said that and it would be a and it was a gutsy call when he pulled off <laughs> so i'm Tell you, these two teams are both very well balanced and great offenses, great defenses, and what a great matchup to come into the Rose Bowl to uh, basically, uh, it's probably playing for a national championship uh, here to say, now if we look at it now. Yeah, exactly. And this had a lot of national championship implications, obviously, because you had Michigan State, who's the number one team in the country. And of course, back then, what they used to do was they used to vote on the national championship. You know, they, it wasn't like no playoffs or national championship one for, no, they didn't do that. It was voted upon by the writers and, and, the, and the Associated Press, which was crazy. We, I, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember dealing with that, having the arguments and stuff, but this was the way it was. And it all also came down to what happened, what happens at, in the other Rose Bowl? The Orange Bowl had had a lot to do with the, with the national championship as well. So it was, it, it was, it was, it was an interesting time in 1966 as far as like college football was concerned. It was very interesting, especially towards the end of the year when you would have a lot of stuff. A lot there was a lot of chaos. Let's just say that a lot of chaos dealing with a national championship. Okay, so. Now we got we know a little bit about the teams. Why don't you tell us a little bit of what was uh, some of the high points of the game and and how it uh, came down to that close ending? Okay, they were a two touchdown favorite. Okay, UCLA was the two touchdown underdog. They had coming in with nothing to lose and everything. The first quarter went scoreless. Nobody scored. Okay, and the second quarter, Gary Beeman. The, the, first of all, the Bruins recovered a punt inside the five, recovered a muffed punt inside the five yard line, which was the first crucial play of the game. A couple of plays later, Gary Beeman scored on a one yard touchdown plunge to give him a seven to nothing lead. Okay. And that stayed that way until halftime. Well, actually, Pro Throw called an onside kick. That's where the genius comes in. Right after the, right afterwards, he calls an onside kick and the Bruins recover. The very next play, Pro Throw throws a 50-some yard touch, uh, pass to Kurt Zimmerman, who catches the ball inside the five, and the Bruins score again, giving them a 14 to nothing lead at halftime. And they, it's just just a one-two quick, one-two punch in the middle of the se in the second quarter to get the, the, the Spartans off balance. And to the shock of the nation, it was 14 nothing at halftime on offensively. 
the gutty little Bruins was holding down the Spartans for much of the first half. Jimmy Ray couldn't really complete it. Bob Apisa was the fullback. He really couldn't get started for the Spartans. So it was 14-0 at the half. Now in the second half, they started to run the ball, continuously to run the ball, and they started to wear down the Bruins' defense. You know, it was like they would get five, three yards, and three yards became five yards. Five yards became seven yards. That way, all the way through, and then Michigan State finally scored midway through the fourth quarter. It took them until the fourth quarter to finally score, and that was on a, on a, on a Bob Apisa 38-yard touchdown run. Ran right up the middle, broke a couple tackles in the Bruins secondary, was off to the races for 38 yards on a touchdown, but they missed the extra point. That is crucial. Whenever you see a missed extra point, even in the NFL, whatever, it always comes back to haunt you. And it did this case for Michigan State. Now, less than a minute to go, the Bruins, I mean, uh, the Spartans get the ball back and they drive down the field. With less than a minute to play, uh, Steve Jude, which was the backup quarterback, he scores on a one-yard touchdown run to cut the lead to 14 to 12. Then they go for two. Remember, less than a minute to play, late in the fourth quarter. They go to, for two for, to tie. Now, with a tie game, Michigan State still can claim a national championship with a tie. They still could claim one. But Doherty, of course, goes for two, had no choice, has to go for two to tie the game. No overtime in college. They go for two. And that sets the stage for what is considered the greatest defensive play in UCLA's history. They pitched the ball to a piece of going to the right side. Out of nowhere is defensive back Bob Stiles, who is later named the Rose Bowl's most valuable player for one play. And what happened was he's a piece of with this big, huge strapping fullback. He goes around the right side. Styles hits him dead on at the goal line so hard that he knocks himself unconscious. But he keeps a piece out of the end zone and prevents the two point conversion and UCLA wins. It is named. They did a poll about maybe five or 10 years ago. That is ranked number 25 on the greatest sports moments in LA history is him. And there's a great picture of that right afterwards that when Styles is literally being helped off the field, he was still kind of unconscious, but he knocked himself out to prevent Apisa from scoring. And that was the ball game. And it prevented Michigan state from winning the national championship. Wow. So he's a, he's a great hero and probably doesn't even know it because he's a, He's got the birds circling around and uh, bells exactly. ringing and stuff. So, wow. Stonewalls him at the goal line to, to save the game. That's a, that is a tremendous ending. And uh, I guess deservedly so gets exactly. that MVP, you know, uh, for sacrificing himself to, to stop that runner from getting in. Wow. Yeah, and there's a great picture of that, of the, of the aftermath after that, where two Bruin players are helping him, and he's like limp, and he's like like a sack of potatoes, and you can see pro throw in the background, just you know celebrating and stuff, and tapping this, you know, checking on checking on Styles and everything. But he was he saved that he saved UCLA, and it caused again controversy because later that night Alabama played Nebraska in the Orange Bowl, and Alabama defeated Nebraska, and ended up being claimed national champs. Really? Okay. So Al- Alabama became the national champions and not UCLA. 
for, for right. beating number because, one. Again, UCLA, I don't think UCLA was even ranked really? in that game. They weren't, I don't think they were ranked, you know, but I, I, I have to look back on it. I think they might have been, but it wasn't They were, If they were, they weren't ranked very high, you know, especially with them being 14-point underdogs. Yeah, wow. That, that is surprising that uh, that they wouldn't be – ranked on you know get the the nod for knocking off number one usually the voting would normally go that way you know if number one well fell. i think heading into the game there wasn't ranked but afterwards i have to check and see what they were ranked in the final ap polling you know well i, I know michigan state ended up being number two uh when yes. i was looking at some research earlier but i i was i just assumed ucla was number one i didn't realize uh, alabama was the national champs that year hmm, very interesting so yeah i guess there would be some controversy yeah <laughs> <laughs> and again, and there, there are countless instances in throughout college football history where there's been some controversy or some arguing back and forth or who should be number one at the end of the season. A lot of different instances. Hmm. Wow. But you, uh, that, I mean, I thank you for sharing that with us. Today. That's a that's a great Rose Bowl moment and uh, really helps us to celebrate this Rose Bowl uh, 100 during this month. And uh, sure glad that you were able to, to bring us some some great uh, information on that game and the great players and teams that, that played in that uh, to help preserve the football history. So thank you for oh, that. Oh, man, no problem, man. Anytime I get a chance to talk to you about football or specifically UCLA football, I love it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, tell, tell us, how are uh, things going on uh, the Historically Speaking podcast and, and some of the other things that you're doing? Well, right now we are anticipating who's going to be in the World Series because I am efforting a fellow podcaster colleague of ours, Chad Kane, to come on with me to talk, to do a quick um Historically speaking, sports World Series tale of the tape. Historically speaking, that is, of course, because... You know, who is ever in the World Series, I'm going to give like a little quick rundown of their World Series or team histories, whether it's the Astros or the Phillies, which, which actually is the Phillies who just won the World Series, who just won the pennant this afternoon. And, you know, whoever comes out of the, the, the American League. So that's coming up on Historically Speaking Sports and I have some other things that are just kind of rolling around in my head that I'm just trying to put together, piece together. But right now, baseball is on our postseason baseball, more specifically, is on, on, is on our minds here at Historically Speaking Sports. And um, we, I did like a little postseason, like a postseason field, you know, uh, kind of a tale of the tape, but their story, each team stories in the pre in a postseason that made the major league baseball postseason. So that's what's going on with us right here. Okay. And, and folks, uh, don't be confused. We're, we are recording this uh, a little early. We're, we're in late October and I know this is airing in December. So make sure you go back and check uh, Dana's historically speaking sports on the world series uh, uh, preview that he's talking about, but he's, um, he's got a bunch more episodes since then too, but uh, we're, we're recording this a little bit earlier than, than All normal, right. so. <laughs> So, uh, Dana, thank you very much. And I, I know we have you on for some other segments for celebrating this Rose Bowl uh, oh, yeah. 100 history. So we will talk to you again in a few days or a week or so uh, here on Pixie and Dispatch. We're talking to Dana Auguster. So thank you very much for joining us. Oh, man, thank you, man. Not a problem. I love doing this. We're taking a peek over at the chains in the down marker. It's fourth and long. We're going to have to punt the ball and get on out of here. But we'll have another series tomorrow for your football history headlines. So be sure to tune in. 
we invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. Pigskindispatch.com is a proud affiliate of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Do you wish you knew more about the 100 seasons of the NFL? You're in luck because you found the Football History Dude podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. From the founding of the league in an auto showroom, all the way to what it is today, America's favorite sport and a behemoth of an industry. My name is Ernie Chapman. Football is my passion, and I want you to come along with me each week to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board, my DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.